Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk. I am Sunny, and I'm so glad you're here. I am dying of laughter because moments before the show, we always go live at noon, but obviously it's 1214 right now. I called Rachel. If, if this is not an indication of the of, of the age that I'm approaching, and as we welcome our guest, who is this young, fresh, wonderful woman, I just had to tell the story. I have a head cold, and I blew my nose too hard, and it sent snot into my head. And I was so dizzy. It was like I had an ice block in my head. I like fell over from nausea and dizziness. And that's where you are at 41. So I feel like I should welcome today's guest as the fresh spring chicken that she is. And <laughs> we can laugh about this, Gigi, now, but like we tell oh you, girl, gosh. add another 20 years. It's insane. And you're sick too. <laughs> yeah, I came down with something a few days ago and I was just joking around that uh, the other the, this morning, actually, I'm like the other day. No, this was this morning. <laughs> Again, indicator of where we're at with this, these whatever's going around. But I was like, who are the snot elves in my head? And can they leave the factory now? Like they they need to go. It's been three days too long. A girl's got to talk. I'm talking to you here and I'm just like, oh, my God, this this cold needs to get out. Get the heck away. It's insane. It's. I was telling producer Rachel before we got on, we've had five weeks in a row in my house where at least one person wow. has been sick, including home from school. And this is the first time though that a, like a common cold has literally almost taken me out. My mom was yeah. in my closet because she was helping with something like fanning me like this. I was like, I'm going to die from, from, from blowing my nose. So there we are. Um, anyway, I want to give you the proper introduction here, Gigi, because you are, are so much more, we've been kind of cheekily calling this ask a Gen Zer, but you are so much more <laughs> than a young person. You are a model influencer, chronic illness advocate speaker. You host the podcast, of course, everything you need is within. And guys, Gigi also has been profiled in some really, really big press, uh, pop sugar, glamour, Inc, E Fox news more. She's also so um, a finalist in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Model Search. So you can find her gorgeous pictures everywhere online. And soon you will be a children's book author as well. Girl, you are busy. And how old are you again? I'm going to turn 25 in May. So I'm 24. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo to you. You have a platform and it's clear that you are using it to the absolute best of your ability. So I, I do want to get to your advocacy work and what's been so um, really been sort of your hook now. You work in the influencer space, but you teach influencers how to use their platforms for good, which I love. But I want to I want to loop back to the Gen Z thing, because leading with this question and, and as we chatted on social media, me and some of my followers before this interview, there seems to be the shroud of mystery about Gen Z kids and what it is that drives you guys, motivates you, and most importantly, differentiates you from generations past. So if you were to give a couple of words or descriptors of what it is that you believe defines your generation, bearing in mind all of the wonderful things mm. we said you have, have been a part of, what would those be? I think self-determined. I think, uh, you know, a little bit of this like looming doom and gloom um, of, of the way that our world is going and also a playfulness. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a sure playfulness. I mean, look at most branding 
uh, from any Gen Z or it's playful. It's there's a gradient, there's rainbows, there's stickers, like it's quirky and cute. And not that anyone else couldn't have it. I just think that Gen Z has like a flair when it comes to marketing. That's just really brilliant um, and, and youthful and playful. And I think that's, I mean, in capitalist, capitalistic America, that's kind of the, the, I guess, biggest thing that people want they they want to look youthful they want the magic youth serum they want the makeup trick that's going to make them look younger and gen z's just like yeah we got it <laughs> and that's why i think that that kind of marketing works really well but you know back to that doom and gloom i mean when we think of where the world's going to go in the next you know century i guess it's it's a little bit scary. And I think our generation, not that generations past maybe haven't felt this. I just think we're really bearing the weight of it because we're kids and, you know, these natural disasters are happening. And then we're out here like, why do we even want to put time and effort into finding a job when the world could end tomorrow or like a nuclear war could start, right? Like, I think, I think these are real fears that we're more exposed to than any other generation because of how much information we're absorbing from social media and from digital interfaces. Um, so yeah, that that one's that. And then self-determined is also very like, I want to be a TikToker. And then like, they'll go out and do it. Or like, I'm going to open a business and then like goes out and do, does it. And I just think that a lot of my friends are like that and they're trying to break those generational patterns of what traditional work looks like, what traditional, uh, you know, lifestyle looks like and so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm a Xenial, so born in 81, kind of straddling Gen X and the millennial generation. And I do remember even watching millennials come up in the workforce and um, people have a reaction to how new groups of people or new generations yeah. of kids are received into the workforce. And they often compare it to, oh, when I was an intern and I didn't right. get paid and I didn't right. get paid. Or I, when I was a first year XYZ and whatever job, it didn't happen. I think yeah. the storyline with a lot of millennials was, at least from the outside, it was inspiring and interesting to see them sort of rework the model of um, working from home and making your own hours and leading the way in this influencer sort of space. But what you guys have done that's interesting is you've added a layer of depth to it. And I do want to kind of dig into um, the issues that I know that you have ad advocated for on your platform as well as others. Um, you did grow up with kind of a screen in your face and, and we didn't. Do you feel like you're absorbing more of current events and things that are going on that are impacting your world. And moreover, when you have all of that often negative information, what do you do with it? Because it's one thing to be paralyzed with fear about the state of our politics or our world or our climate, but it's another thing to actually do something with that information. So take us up from that point. Yeah, I mean, I think this is very, you know, it's a very individual uh, kind of conversation that we can have when it comes to the way that we curate our social feeds. I know there was a period of time. I mean, I think back to literally when I was on the plane home January 27th, 2020, I was coming from a wedding here in New York back to LA and I remember the only thing in my TikTok feed was about Kobe Bryant passing away and his daughter in the helicopter crash and the uh, wildfires happening in Australia and the you know outbreak starting in China. All of that happened in January of 2020 and I remember sitting there being like I feel really bad 
and this world is really scaring me. And so, like, how can I find joy on the internet? Um, And for me, that was, like, detaching from it at the time. And then I came home, and obviously there was more of that. And there's so much hurt, and there's so much sadness, and there's so much scariness that I was like, I want to just focus on things that make me feel good. Not in a toxic positivity way, but in a way that's like, if really – propagating a plant is what's making me happy and I'm teaching other people how to do it and they're finding joy from this or I'm showing them about how to, you know, love their body when they're in an environment where maybe they can't express themselves freely. Like if they're if they're home um, with their parents in their high school bedroom, like I was at the time and um, just really feeling like, wow, like I don't feel like myself anymore because I don't have that freedom that I had in college. Um, you know, just, just walking people through that. And so a big part of my, I think, inclination to start sharing more positive outlooks on the internet and really make it about how to help other people with their own self-development and improvement came from myself needing that. Mm -hmm. It came from in 2020 also when there was a, you know, Black Lives Matter movement was happening. I was like, people are out here posting ridiculous things and, you know, they're not paying attention to current events. So there's like a fine line of, when do you use your platform and when do you kind of just help other people be happy, right? Are you educating or are you entertaining? And if you are educating, where's your credibility? Because a lot mm-hmm. of the time, not that people out there with without degrees or, you know, doctorates or whatever letters behind their name um, aren't valid, but when you do have that credibility and that training, it also can really solidify the the things that you're saying. So I think that was one thing that I really was um, interested in. And so that inspired me to go on and get my master's degree uh, from USC as well in innovation design and technology. And as I did that, I focused really on social media literacy and just looking and researching the way that people were kind of dissecting um, their digital identity and also the way that we can teach social media in a more holistic way that honors our mental health instead of hurting it. I love that. And raising kids, it's really difficult to explain to them the importance of differentiating your actual soul, identity, personhood from what you show on social media. And I, it's easier for us. I grew up, I didn't get a cell phone until I was 21 years old. And what I love about the work you're doing and the things you're saying right now is that it teaches us that while it's okay to have a presence on social media and to even be passionate about it, make it part of your career and make it part of your advocacy, it can't encompass the entire reason for your existence. And I think yeah. your generation is the first to kind of to kind of have to deal with that. Millennials really embraced it. It was fairly new at the time. They found ways to make money off social media. They found ways to meet groups of people in similar situations. But now we're in the precarious moment of, okay, we have this very powerful tool. Now we have to set boundaries within our own selves because the boundaries will yeah. never come from the companies, yeah. right? TikTok, no. so, uh, Instagram, they're never going to say, please spend less time on our platform. Please let me help right. you with, you know. So I love that you say that. And, and I yeah. know that with your own individual health story too, you've had far from an easy go when it comes to your health and yeah. the struggles that you've dealt with with your with your um, mental health as well. So can you walk us through that journey and why you are a chronic illness advocate and how that all started? 
Yeah. So a big part of my story and the work I do is in health advocacy. And I mean, I honestly think I learned by example from my grandmother because she does a lot of civic duty work and uh, working in nursing homes and with local government to help older people. Um, and she also did work in healthcare and women's health uh, back when she was working, um, like in those working years, you know, back in the day. Um, but really what happened is around age 11, I got diagnosed with a condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which affects the connective tissue in my body. The way that I like to describe it is think of a rubber band that has lost its elasticity. Um, it's completely stretched out and it doesn't have any like give to it. So therefore, mm -hmm. my joints are hypermobile and can basically get hurt easier. And so as I was growing into my body um, and growing up more, you know, this was affecting me more and I had more and more chronic pain. Wait, can happen? I hop in and ask what you noticed yeah. that that led you to that diagnosis, you and your parents? Yeah, I mean, I I kept getting injuries like back to back, and I lived in New York City, and I talk about like the medical privilege that I have to live here and to have access to the doctors here and to have amazing healthcare. Um, so I'm very eternally grateful that I got diagnosed so young and was able to really work through that, but. Yeah, that, that's not a privilege everyone has, which is also why I talk about it so openly and I say as much as I can with with how I felt. Um, and, and I think it was also about communicating of being like, no, like, you know, this really hurts. It always is doing this thing. Like, I'm always getting bruises. I can't do gym class without being in pain, so on and so forth. And so that was really challenging um, growing up. And I think the most challenging part was missing out on like being a kid, you know, like mm. I wasn't able to do gym class because they didn't want me to get injured. So they were like, do physical therapy on the side. And so I would literally just like <sighs> sit there doing like leg raises and like using rubber bands and stuff, which is like great. Like I was doing my own thing, but it just wasn't really something that I I think I realized was going to affect me long term. Um, it made me really shy at times. And, you know, I, I even had uh, the the fact that teachers didn't really have the empathy or understand back then what because I looked OK was one of the hardest things for me. And then I think, you know, when teachers did push back, like I, I literally had my one of my teachers called me Gimpy. Like, and I thought, like, because my name was, like, Gabrielle, I was, like, oh, it's, like, a name. Like, it's, like, a nickname. It's so cute. Like, I thought it was, like, Gigi or, like, Gabby. But, like, no, I, I realize now it was, like, very derogatory and, like, not nice. Um, and then flash forward to college, I had teachers not believe me. And it was to the point where I ended up having to literally bring my camera with me to my doctor's appointments and give my my presentations and my homework with visual references to where I was, the pain I was in, the people mm. I was with, the the sight, sounds, and textures around me. And I was an art student, so it was kind of natural for me to use and express myself and, you know, show, don't tell my story. And I think as I did that, I began, began to articulate myself really eloquently about what I was feeling. And it just um, – Inside, I think if you know, if you feel that something's off, it definitely is. And uh, I guess flash forward to a couple months ago, I mean, I'd been planning to get a diagnostic laparoscopy for the past year and a half. And I finally 
did it and they ended up finding endometriosis. And since the the past two months, my pain levels have been so far down. It feels like I'm a new person. And it just goes to show that if you do continue to advocate for yourself, that you will get an answer. And for me, it unfortunately took 13 years. Well, I'm sorry that you had that challenge along the way, especially the jokes from the adults, which feels just wholly inappropriate. Um, that's just, that's awful. But, um, you know, as we talk to multiple people in the podcast, what I'm noticing is this trend that maybe it started with you guys and the younger generation of being more open to sharing, but I do feel like there's such a strong self-advocacy movement happening where, like you said, you're no, people are noticing symptoms or they're curious about their family's health history, or they've noticed that something is happening repeatedly. Whereas in the older generations and in times past, we would just wait and we, mm-hmm. we meaning people generally just relied on that once a year opinion of their doctor and didn't bother him before then or her. These days, people are noticing things, taking action, and they're connecting with people like you who are willing to share their stories and it's pointing them in directions, yeah. potentially saving lives or at the very least improving the quality of them. Absolutely. And like that's why I always say I'll never stop doing this work because – you know, I I, I think I, I just posted a reel from my talk at Yale last week. Um, and, you know, the one of the biggest criticisms that I get from older people is why do you share such intimate details of your life on the internet? And when I said that, I was looking at this auditorium full of people there to learn about health advocacy and why patients go out there because people are in, in, you know, around the world, they're suffering in a lot of different ways. And I think if telling my story, um, you know, is something that is going to propel somebody else to maybe be like, wow, like that story actually is really parallel to mine. Maybe I should get that checked out. Maybe Mm -hmm. I should take you know, the expert's opinion um, and and make that extra appointment. I just think it's really important because sometimes, you know, people just don't, they they just don't want to believe that something's wrong. And that was me for a long mm-hmm. time too. I was like, no, it's just my EDS. Like, I don't want any, I don't want endometriosis. I don't want that. To, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. That's like, it's, it affects one in 10 women. But, you know, I was, I already had kind of come to terms with like my, EDS. And I was like, you know what? This is just my life. And now I'm like, whoa, like I have to think about freezing my eggs in a couple years, which is, you know, it's like a very normal thing that we talk about doing as women. Um, But I also just having this extra thing that I have to deal with again is like just it's kind of it was daunting. And I think now that I'm through the, the woods, I think the scariest part about it is that at any point it could come back. And my pain could really come back in resurgence. But I do know at least the root cause now, which is a blessing and, and a curse. So, yeah. Are you willing to share, just because I know there will be people who are listening who are curious of what worked for you, how you managed that pain, how you got it to go down, what the cause was and any lifestyle factors. I know this is kind of like an offshoot. I don't want this to become like just a discussion about endometriosis, but I know there will be people who, who will be like, Gigi, what did you do? Tell me. So yeah. what's your game plan? Yeah, absolutely. And just for, for 
just for for legal purposes, um, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a licensed yes. clinician. This is only my experience as a patient. Um, so please consult a medical professional before you do anything. Uh, but my game plan was I, you know, was seeing a pain specialist because I kept having this really horrendous lower back pain. It would happen every single time that I, you know, three weeks out of the month before, during, and after my menstrual cycle. And that was just, it was awful. I had extra painkillers for my doctor on top of medicine that I'm using to manage my EDS pain. Um, but basically, you know, I, I talked to her and she's like, I think you just, you know, this is this is a possibility. One in 10 women have it. There's a possibility you go to a doctor and you get the surgery and you don't have it. There's a possibility you go to the doctor and you do have it. And it's better. It's a serious condition. It affects your fertility. It affects your life. It, it can it can make you bedridden. It can completely, you know, just it, it's just a very serious condition. So look into it if you have any suspicion. Talk to your doctor. And then once I got the surgery, um, you know, you go, you come up with a game plan with your doctor. For me, it was like you have to – they usually – use an IUD to help control uh, the hormones and the way that your body is regulating them. Um, and that's supposed to help with the the pain every month. Uh, so I, you know, I'm still only two months out from my surgery. Actually, is it the 21st? Is it the 21st? It's, it's exactly the 22nd. The 22nd. Wow. Mm -hmm. Two months in a day for me. Uh, so that's kind of cool. And yeah, just you know, once I got the surgery, I mean, it was an awful, uh, if you ever get a laparoscopic surgery, it's like just so painful. Um, and luckily I, I was at home with my family and they just helped me heal. And my friends were really great and people in my life are just really great and supportive. And, uh, again, now I'm able to do things I never was. I'm able to go out on long, long hikes and long walks and long adventures with, people and just enjoy things that I just really never was able to do without pain. So for me, it's the pain management has been such a godsend for me. I, I, I can't say this enough how much I feel like a different person. But yeah, just consult your doctor if you have any suspicion and just notice like when I think the biggest thing for us was the cyclical pain. Mm -hmm. It was like there was one week out of the month that I didn't have pain. Otherwise, it was the most intense leading up to and during my period. And then it was like calming down after. And I think really thinking and analyzing that cycle and how it happened every single month mm -hmm. was something that is a, a pretty obvious indicator. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I know that when we get into some of these health topics, people are always going to want to know, okay, what yeah. did you notice? How do I know if this is something? So um, thank you for sharing that. I want to talk about your Sports Illustrated career, Gigi. Yeah. What? This is so exciting. So if you guys go on her website and or any social media, you'll see um, the SI Swim photos, which are gorgeous. How did this all go down? And when are we going to see you back on the pages? Um, I mean, that's a question. The when are you going to see me back there? I mean, we're going to have to talk to the team about that. I don't know <laughs> when that's going to happen. Um, but I entered the swim search uh, a year ago and I got a phone call, uh, I think on the 27th or 28th of February last year, just being like, yeah, we we liked you and your your mission and everything. And we'll see you in the DR in two weeks. And I was like, whoa, what? 
And, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was that my mission and the whole mission from last year was about paying with change. And it was about using your platform and your voice for good. And so, you know, for me, it was all about health advocacy and helping women with health issues. And, you know, I showed up, I, I did get a spray tan and I got my nails done, but like that was it. You know, I, I didn't go crazy. I, I know some of the other people got like M sculpt and cool sculpting and worked out like crazy and fasted. And I'm like, nah, like I'm showing up exactly who I am because I wouldn't want to be anything else than myself. I, w- I wouldn't want to be inauthentic to who I am. And so, excuse me, I just kind of, you know, showed up and. I think the most full circle part about it was that basically when I got my diagnosis of EDS at age 11, I had to give up competitive swimming and I found a new hobby. My new hobby happened to be photography. As I found photography, I was looking to experts in the the world of art making and photography and just learning how can I help people be their most confident on the other side of the camera. So I do art, you know, again, I got a BFA and then I'm there in the DR shooting with Yusai, who is a world renowned photographer. And I'm not assisting him, but rather he's shooting photos of me for Sports Illustrated Swim. So I was like, wow, so full circle, so amazing. And it's just been really great to have the SI team amplify my mission and my message and to help as many women out there that are dealing with health issues feel less alone. And I can absolutely guarantee you that when those photos and when the announcement went live, I just got so many messages from women being like, thank you for for doing that. Yeah. You know, what's interesting from like the consumer side of it, watching these models on social media or in print is that for the longest time, models were very one-dimensional. I grew up in the 90s when the waif model was yeah. in. And not only did we have an unrealistic body standard, but we also had these models who were often not... Um, given an opportunity to show their personal struggles or tell their personal stories. And it's only decades later when you hear, I don't know, one that comes to mind is Paulina Poroskova tell her story about like the harrowing things that she went through, um, you know, getting out of a communist country. This is just an example. But for years, I've been looking at this gorgeous woman on magazine covers and just thinking, oh, she's pretty. Um, What I love about you know, like you said, SI now or modeling now in general is that we are getting to know the people behind it. It's not just, of course you look great. Yeah. Of course you photograph yeah. really well, but um, I love the turn that that's taking, even for women. Like it's, it feels so less patriarchal to be like, okay, just look at a pretty woman. And listen, I love looking at pretty people just as much as the next guy, but I love the three-dimensional part of knowing, oh gosh, even though she's gorgeous and she's all over my um, magazine stands and, you know, is all over social media, she's going through the same things that I am. And it makes it I mean, from a marketing standpoint, it's obviously brilliant too, but it just adds that extra layer, which I really yeah. love. And I love that they gave you the chance to sh- share that side of you as well. Yeah. And and like you're saying, it's I think also extends out not just modeling, but into advertising and marketing as a whole, um, as well as, you know, workplace environments. I mean, there were a lot of workplace environments that were racist, homophobic, and like sexist and fat phobic. And I think that the times are really changing. And I think part of that is because Gen Z, in at least the people that I've surrounded myself with, I did grow up in New York City in a very liberal place in the world. I grew up also, you know, I, I went to college in Los Angeles, also 
relatively liberal city. And I think that being around diverse cultures also helped me want to make that change. And since a lot of marketing and advertising is coming out of New York and LA and Miami, really diverse places, I think that because we're more accepting, we're hopefully changing that tide for what the future can look like uh, for widespread marketing throughout our country. I also think that something else to really note is that, yeah, we do want to get to know that person behind it. And, um, you know, it's interesting. A lot of times people are like, oh, you're a model. And I'm like, but not really, because I honestly, I don't really model. I, I would say I'm a role model, maybe, but I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a, you know, I'm not signed to an agency. I, I would be open to it. But, you know, my main goal is public speaking and educating as many people as I can in patient advocacy spaces. And so I think the fact that I do get to model as a speaker, as an advocate, that's mm-hmm. what's important to me. And I think that's what's really special um, in today's world where people know me and the work I do, not just my face. Right. There's there's a common stereotype that's held about Gen Z members, and it is that they are often overly emotional, sensitive in a way that precludes them from being able to participate in what other generations consider pretty standard things like going to off- work in an office and dealing with you know, yeah, just the really crazy grumpy person who's been there for 30 years and hates new people. Or what, what do you make of the snowflake stereotype of Gen Z? Why do you think it's persisted? And this is your chance to, to refute it in any way, or, or is that something you guys, and I'm only asking you to speak for yourself, but generally lean into it's sort of a mark of strength of sorts too. Yeah. I think the, the overall concept about Gen Z being snowflakes is really just that we maybe have some, again, some more doubts and fears uh, in the world that feel more real to us because, to be honest, all you older people in the workforce, guess what? You're not going to live to see the crazy world that might, you know, where cities might be underwater. We're not, you're not going to see that. We are. Our kids will. And I think that is like the reality that we're kind of facing and we're realizing. And so we're like, you know what? If I want to work remotely, then I should have the flexibility to do that from a beautiful place because life is too effing short to not. I think I think that's a part of it. I also think the other part of it is older people, like you just got to be nicer. Like we're kids. <laughs> oh my God. Like the oldest person in Gen Z should be 25, like 25 and under. 25 to what 15 16 something like that is the the gen z generation and i think it's quite ridiculous honestly for older people to bully young people and you know you just we we saw those statistics come out about um teen suicide rates going up for men and women that are teenagers right now and all older people have to say about is you shouldn't talk about your health online you need to just get better like No, like now we normalize therapy. We talk about the tools and resources that help us because guess what? Not everyone has access to it. And I think because Gen Z is able to give more information out there and say some more polarizing things at times, I think other generations don't want to view the world in a different way. They're like, no, I grew Mm -hmm. up and people are a certain way. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things in terms of Gen Z being snowflakes comes down to like gen the the topics of gender. And I think, you know, for Gen Z, we're all like, we accept you as you are, however you want to, whatever you want to be called, we'll call you that. Older people are like, no, 
I don't believe that. That's not like some older people, not saying everyone, some. And I think that Gen Z just really likes to refute that because the world that we live in is one that we want to see be more accepting, more positive, especially when the outcome for the rest of our life and the environment around us might not be so positive. So yeah, uh, that's what I think. How, how do you engage with someone? And we can use the gender um, topic as an example, but there's plenty of debate going on, whether it's through podcast platforms or on digital spaces online or even traditional media. Now, the New York Times just um, got into a bit of a controversy. They did a profile piece on a woman who is sort of um, presenting an, an opposing side on the gender debate and a whole group of other New York Times staffers came out and put this public letter out saying we condemn our colleagues for mm -hmm. either appearing in anyway. So this is just one example. But how do you deal with addressing controversial topics? Because we all live online now and you guys were born online um, with an aim at also trying to understand the other side. Yeah, I think it's always important to like be like, oh, could you explain that to me a little bit more? I'm just curious to understand your thought pattern or the logic. You don't want to say logic because, you know, logic is, I guess, can be subjective at times. But you could just say, I want to understand your thought pattern and where you're coming from. And if it's simply, well, I just grew up in a different era and we don't view people a certain way, then like, there's your answer and you're probably not going to change it. And for me, it's not even worth getting into a discussion about something if the other side is not going to listen. Um, and I mean, for Gen Z, I think Gen Z is always open to listening. The other thing that they do try mostly to do is to share their other perspective and be like, oh, so that's your perspective. Can I mm -hmm. share my perspective? Can I share what other people do? Can I share how, you know, other people in my generation maybe think to help you better understand why certain people are navigating the world in a way that's uncomfortable to you? And I think it all usually comes down to they just don't want to necessarily have, I think, a reality check and have their ego checked of like, yeah, the world does look different than maybe I I envision it. And that's okay. And uh, you know, I think both sides have to accept that. We often hear stories as well about um, college campuses inviting speakers um, with whom at least a portion of students might be uncomfortable with their perspective. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get your take on this too. And, and um, to me, I have, as a journalist and as a believer in more talk, not less talk, um, what's confusing to me and not to group everybody into one sort of way of thinking, because I realize there are probably um, people in your generation or Gen Zers who welcome open debate, but when those headlines get out, it can seem the opposite. So I want to get your thoughts on how you think or who you think uh, deserves a stage, whether it be at a college campus or in another setting or forum, and maybe also addressing the issue of some people being uncomfortable, even with the thought and concept of open debate and discussion. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a, there's a lot of people, but I mean, I know, for example, I went to USC. Um, 
you know, University of Southern California, University of Spoiled Children, a lot of people, a lot of a lot of powerful people out there in the world send their children there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this is a generalization, but this is a first, you know, recount of something that happened. Ben Shapiro came mm-hmm. to our campus and as somebody who doesn't really like him, as somebody who doesn't really like the things he says, is you know, is says offensive things to you know, members of the LGBTQ community who are my friends. Um, you know, I did not support the university's decision to allow this person to come to campus. Is that for me to decide? Uh, not necessarily. He still had lines of people waiting to see him there. There's a lot of, uh, you know, people that believe in him and like him. And so this happens across campuses. And there's, it's not to say that one side is right or wrong. It's personal preference. If I don't want to go, I don't have to go. Does that mean that I should, you know, you know, kind of like then talk about that on the internet or bash the university? I mean, I, I didn't at the time, but I know of friends that they did they wrote to the university they posted Mm -hmm. on their ig stories they were like this is really offensive to you know different communities on campus why would you have this person here so i think it's just really important to like think about holistically the people that you're trying to target if you're trying to or target's the wrong word help it uh share info with enlighten maybe i i just think it's really important to think about and then also thinking about when you do invite people that maybe oppose your uh, personal controversial people to a campus you'll see which friends of yours show up and then I think it's important to have a discussion with them of like hey I saw that you went to this I'm just kind of curious about your perspective on blah 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 and Mm -hmm. you know I think I think hopefully Gen Z is getting a little bit better at having those conversations but at the same time there's another group of gen z that's like if you went to that we're not friends at all i don't want to talk to you i don't want to hear you and i mean this happened with the elections it's so uh, you know and this is i do think the the benefit of age and experience and uh, having been personally triggered my beliefs have been triggered and challenged for a large portion of my adult life and for a long time i considered that an assault on my emotions or an assault Mm -hmm. on my sense of well-being but where growth comes, and this is just me, this is not me trying to give advice yeah. to like the kiddos, but what I found is that beliefs grow under duress and strength grows under duress. So for the portion mm. of my life where I was surrounded by a lot of similarly minded people, um, it was complacent. It was easy. It was fine. Sure. Yeah. I knew. But yeah. what was interesting to me, and, and this is what I, I kind of worry about the lack of challenge in any, really in any age group of people is that surrounding ourselves or living in these echo chambers, we really deny ourselves the ability, not only to see a perspective that might even if not change, tweak your perspective, but you're denying yourself to the opportunity to find your own strength in your belief. And the opportunity yeah. for me, you know, was to really flesh out my beliefs and say, okay, well, I've really never had to defend this before. So let me think about it. Right. Um, yeah. and, and, and if I were to look at Gen Z as a whole, that's just one thing that um, I would hope that things work toward. And again, not asking you to speak on behalf of millions of people, but um, this is an outsider's perspective, but you know, yeah. um, the benefit in challenge too, it, it, I, I yeah. see an upside. I think I think so too. And I think just hearing both sides can help you gain insight on why a person does things a certain way. And I think it's helpful 
really. Mm -hmm. It's helpful for both parties, especially if you're talking about something, you know, about women's, let's say in in a case of dating and you're talking Mm -hmm. about women's rights, maybe, or maybe you're talking about like just uh, gender identity or or, uh, just different different things and you notice something that you're like huh that's that doesn't really sit well with me and mm-hmm. then you're like can you explain and then once you explain it it's like oh well maybe here's a book that you can read that might not necessarily change your perspective but give you another one to consider um to really holistically make up your beliefs um mm-hmm. you mentioned also you asked the question of speakers i think should be on stages i think justin baldoni he's like i'm like a huge fan uh he's from jane the virgin he plays Raphael. um but he has this book called man enough and it's also a podcast series and i just think that they really deconstruct masculinity in a way that talks about showing your emotion and your empathy and that like you know you know, if you're a man and you don't address your emotions, this is an example of something I literally saw yesterday. It's like you don't share your emotions, then you can't hold space for like the partner in your life because your cup is already full. It's overflowing. You have no space to hold um, for a, a partner. And so I just think talking about it in that way and being like, it's okay to cry and it's okay to talk about your emotions. And on that note, there's this incredible creator. Uh, their name is Alec Venom. Um, mm-hmm. show you guys Alec. just mm-hmm. like such an amazing speaker. So eloquent. Every time I, I hear Alec speak, I'm like, oh my God, I just, it makes, it makes me think. A lot. And it gives me a lot of, I think, space to really share something with another person in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that's so powerful. But again, I know that their content is somewhat polarizing and a lot of people are uncomfortable by it. And as a result, I think that's where the most change can happen, mm-hmm. whether that's on a personal level or on a global level. I love that. I love to hear, you know, someone else leaning into that. I, I fear, you know, we're talking about things we fear and I, I second your fear of where our, you know, our climate stands and the world that my children will grow up in. And I fear things politically speaking. I also fear a world where people can't express opinions outside of a, a commonly yeah. held belief. And I think it's an equal threat, but um, I have hope that with your generation and, and kids beyond that, not that you're a kid or people beyond that, um, that we're going to really work on that as well. And speaking of looking ahead before we wrap up, just, I know you're active in making change in your corner of the world and you've been a, an amazing spokesperson for the issues that are important and dear to your heart. What do you see 10, 20 years from now when Gen Z is no longer those kids that are being interviewed by older people, but the people who are actually in power, in charge and ruling the world, what world do you see ideally? This is a very, I think, ominous question. I haven't really thought about the world in, you know, 20 years and what that could look like. But my hope is that there would be more positivity. There will be more, you know, people uh, and there will, I guess, more people potentially approaching health in a way that comes to the root which is about funding from the government and uh, different places and how that funds pharmaceutical companies and how that funds agricultural companies 
and how our structure of health is, you know, made, I think we really need to get back to the drawing board and shift Mm -hmm. that. I don't know if that will happen in my lifetime, but my hope is that it does because I think we know that there's a big problem happening right now. And I also think that as a result, more people are sick and they're not sure why. I -hmm. also think that there, you know, my hope is that we collectively all work towards, you know, a better planet, a place where, Maybe there's less animal agriculture and people are eating more plants and go vegan, go vegan. Um, I'm vegan. But, (laughs) you know, I did make it 43 minutes without mentioning it. I'm kidding. (laughs) What's the Um, joke? How do you know someone's vegan? They'll tell you. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I think, think you know, for me, it it did come down to my health. I actually do – sorry about that. I actually do have a meat allergy and – it's very serious. And so I, I'm vegan for my health and I'm also vegan for the animals and I'm also vegan for the environment. I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. And I think Gen Z honestly is more aware of that also because we're seeing more celebrities go vegan. A lot of times when celebrities do things, diet culture, a lot (laughs) of people kind of follow along because they're like, wow, I think we, we've seen what's happened with the Kardashians and how they're allegedly using the uh, diabetes drug to lose weight faster. I mean, and then we're seeing a shortage of that drug because people are actually getting prescribed it to lose weight. I think, and, and not the people that need it. I think there's a real, real issue and we need to go back to the drawing board and examine what health means um, not what illness means, but how can we live a healthy lifestyle that is not just eat, you know, diet more and exercise more? It's like, no, there's like a lot of things that contribute to it environment, stress levels, um, you know, mindset, mental stability, therapy. And, and to be able to do all of those things, you have to have access. You don't mm-hmm. have access because it's expensive because of the people controlling it. So, again, my hope is that my generation really changes health and well-being because I think when we all feel good we can operate better and hopefully we can help the planet as well simultaneously. Well I have high hopes especially after speaking with someone as impassioned and as intelligent and motivated as you and leaving the world in your hands for my kids and I'm grateful that you took some time to talk with me today Gigi you're beautiful inside and out. Thank you so much it was my pleasure if anyone has questions anytime please reach out. And uh, yeah, this was just so fun. Anytime. And you're at Gigi Robinson online. At, and then, yeah. oh, your your children's book. Tell us very quickly before we go when that's coming and yeah. when we can take an, uh, keep an eye out for it. It's coming in the next couple of months. I'm going to project like April, May. I'm okay. not 100% sure yet though, but I'm really, really excited about it. It's a children's book about chronic illness and uh, you'll know when it's out. It'll it'll be very clear. And I'm just so, so excited to kind of embark on this next journey of my, my career as an author and, uh, you know, hopefully get into writing more of a thought leadership novel, uh, memoir style book in the next year or so. So yeah, thank awesome. you so much. Thank you so much, Gigi. I really appreciate it. And thank you guys. If you've watched or if you're listening, thank you so much. As always, grateful that you spend a little bit of your day with me to um, learn and hear from our amazing guests. Please do leave a rating and review, guys. This is me begging for that. That helps these episodes get out to people who might find them helpful or useful or inspirational in some way. And uh, that's it. 
Thanks again. We'll see you next week right here on We Gotta Talk.